One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the show. I have a very special guest on today. Zoe Miller is the founder and director of Double Trouble Gang, a women's wear label that started in October 2015 as a direct-to-consumer brand, but has since gone on to have over 100 stockists worldwide. With such success, the brand has been part of a number of prestigious collaborations, as well as being featured in many publications, including the Sunday Times, Telegraph, Vogue... Uh, Who, What, Where, Harper's Bazaar and Cosmopolitan, to name just a few. To share with us the origin story and the secrets behind the brand's incredible growth. So, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> uh, so, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Talking of such, we briefly touched on this in the uh, in reception, but you've only recently come to London, so how are you finding it so far? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I have always wanted to, uh, you know, live here since I was a, a little kid, for as long as I can remember. So uh, I just keep thinking back to, you know, little seven and eight-year-old me, thinking about uh, this big wide world out there. So to be living here is really a dream come true. And what's uh, one kind of... Uh tourist hotspot that you had to go to oh gosh (laughs) I remember the first time I came and it all kind of hits you and you go wow and then you realize that you're just one of the many uh tourists that and all the stuff that they they go and check out yeah um do you know I really really want to go to the palace I haven't been to see Buckingham Palace yet uh I almost feel like I'm saving that up you know for a really really special day um but I just love walking around the city going to galleries even on the tube I love being on the tube I think um I think I'm really the odd one. <laughs> so you're an early riser then, because nobody that goes at nine o'clock in the morning no. enjoys the tube. <laughs> no, I must, uh, yeah, when it gets packed, I do get a little bit like, oh, but the, um, it's great. The one thing, I'm very, very excited. The other day I got invited to the House of Lords. Oh, that's for, Because fantastic. of some, I did like this, the most insignificant thing to help people get into the creative industries about six months ago. I did a workshop or whatever. And they've invited me to go along. And I'm like, wow, that's going to be super cool to sit in that room where people talk jargon that I don't understand. That's amazing. I know. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited. Anyway, I thought we'd start by talking about you. So I know that prior to Double Trouble Gang and um, that you actually started your own fashion PR company and you say it's a wholesale agency as well, which I have no idea what that means. And so I thought maybe you could explain... Uh, how that came to be and you also did it at such a young age so yes yeah I started that when I was 25 which now at 31 uh, I don't know how I was so gutsy Uh, but basically I'd been working in fashion PR uh, for a couple of years prior to that and I had uh, come overseas I'd come to London and I was in Paris actually and I just kind of really realized that there's this big wide world out there and uh, just to take a chance. So when I got back from my holiday <laughs> I I went into work and I resigned and within six weeks I'd then started and set up my own agency. Uh, it was really a dream come true. It grew very quickly and I'm very very fortunate for that. I think that my core focus for starting the agency was that I felt as though there were so many emerging brands out there that didn't have access to PR and and wholesale. And I really felt sad for these brands that were emerging brands that had created incredible collections, but they couldn't necessarily afford PR. Um, This was, you know, before Instagram. I I mean, Twitter obviously was around and and Facebook, but there wasn't that accessibility as what there is now if you're an emerging brand in order reaching your consumer. So I wanted to set out to work with emerging brands to give them affordable PR and to really create uh, buzz around them. So I started the agency. Um, Within six months, I think I had probably, I think around 12 to 15 brands. Uh, which was really exciting. (laughs) Um, And from there, it grew to be the largest fashion PR agency in Australia. Uh, 
in a very short amount of time, we then added in the wholesale element. So that's where we take the brands to buyers and we introduce the collections to them. For a brand, it's so important not just to have that PR support, but for them to have the dollars coming through the door or pounds. Um, and part <laughs> of that is uh, is having a really strong stockist portfolio. So by uh, combining both aspects and looking after both of those really core elements for the brand. We were a very comprehensive agency for them. We were really ingrained in every single element. Normally, they're split across two different agencies or two different companies, um, but by having them under the one roof, we were really able to uh, educate the buyers as to the media support and educate the media as to the buying support. So they went hand in hand. So already I can identify how this has happened because you're a super social person, but you're also like business straight in there. And what one thing I was going to ask is, so with PR, it's public relations, you're having to communicate with people and most of the times these relationships are formulated over long periods of time, hence why most kind of senior PR figures maybe just have a, a bigger black book. You're 25 years old. You've got all these brands. How do you amass the, uh, you know, the the biggest PR agency at that at that age? Like, how how was it a case of just being on the phone? Like, what, what was the hard graph that kind of got you from zero to to one? Uh, I was always accessible. I would respond to emails. I still do within minutes of getting them. I think that I was able to uh, identify through my previous experience in my career the ways in which I felt that PR agencies weren't evolving. We were really entering a digital landscape rapidly and I felt as though by having that accessibility, by always being um, available by never saying no. Nothing was ever too difficult if it meant uh, if a last-minute request came in on, a, you know, six o'clock for a shoot the next day to make sure that the sample got there. To me, being entrusted with a brand's collection and a brand's vision I felt very honoured and I think that it was really important to give it my all, not just for the brands, but to also prove to um, myself and to other people that I was young and I was taking a chance, but that I could do this and and I could do it really well. Um, And I think that's what set us apart. And I think that's really what um, made us grow very rapidly. Very quickly, we were getting recommendations from the press um, when brands would reach out to press saying, you know, I need a new PR agency or I'm looking for... um, uh, wholesale uh, media would always really recommend us and I think that was because we were always very easy to deal with. We always uh, said yes, nothing was ever too difficult and we worked tirelessly 24-7 in order to make sure that the brand's goals were being realised. So how do you go from building this huge uh, PR company that's doing extremely well and like, why do you give that up? You know, Why start your own brand? Um, what was the origins of Double Trouble? And, you know, how did that transition take place? Uh, so I think it was towards maybe the, the last 18 months of, of having the agency. Uh, I had travelled to New York for work and I'd had to come to London for work. And I really felt as though uh, Australia is a big market, but it's really important to also focus globally. So I started to add in that element to our services. So uh, I would take collections to New York and I would take them to press. So I'd take them to, you know, US Vogue, um, Harper's Bazaar, uh, you name it, I, I would take the ranges there and then uh, coming to London as well to have appointments with incredible stores like Selfridges. So I was really able to identify that there was a, a lacking in Australia for that global reach and that was really important in the sense of digital uh, had obviously expanded a lot and digital press coverage translated to sales. That was undeniable. So then uh, towards the early... That, let's so, dig into that. Mm-hmm. Digital... What did you say? Digital coverage was translating to sales. Uh, So what I mean by that is, say, for instance, if there was a feature on US Vogue, they would, uh, US Vogue Online, so they would then link to the brand. And we're able to see then tangible uh, metrics analytically to see, okay, this is how much traffic we're getting from that. So by focusing largely on digital coverage, that's... That's something that was translating to sales for our brands. And at the end of the day, it's great to have press coverage. It's fantastic. Obviously, it builds legitimacy for a brand, but brands need to have sales in order to survive. So by focusing on that digital element globally, you can do that anywhere. So we could be in Australia and I could be reaching out to press in New York, press in London. And that was a really great add-on service that I started to implement. That makes complete sense because the the print publications have somewhat uh, diminished and with the whole transition to digital, it's all focused on measurable results, which kind of to some degree 
when you're in print and you're surrounded and it's that tangible um, effect of holding print, there is a there's a non-tangible aspect of brand building, like you say, but um, it's fascinating to hear that actually the online publications are what are driving the actual results. So definitely, if you're a brand, try and aim for the digital rather than the... It literally purely through click-through rate and you're starting mm-hmm. to identify that what's working there. Absolutely. And it's really incredible to have, uh, to see that as well, to see those analytics and to see what does translate. It makes you able to be a lot more strategic in your approach, especially when you're dealing with things like PR strategies, when you're uh, negotiating exclusives for lookbook releases or campaign image releases. It's really important to understand how a placement translate and translates and, and how you can get really the most return on investment per placement. So can I ask a question into mm-hmm. that? Is It's not a particularly sustainable model to assume that you're going to get a online feature in vogue every month no no definitely not uh, how, how how do you know that or how what's the best way to kind of have an ongoing strategy online in terms of getting press publication uh, press features i think it's really important to read the publications to understand the tone of the journalists to understand what they're focused on it's all well and good just to send a blanket email uh but you're not going to get an answer. It's so important to personalise emails, to understand what it is that people are writing about, to understand what it is that they're hungry for. You might think that uh, you belong in Vogue, but only Vogue decides that you belong in Vogue or on Vogue. And I think that it's really important to understand their audience and to understand why they should feature you. Uh, And I think that that's something that a lot of brands don't necessarily think about. And I think that when it comes to PR and getting those placements, if you don't, and if you're not familiar with what that journalist is writing about, you're not taking an interest in their work. And so why should they take an interest in yours? Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it, I guess. So I think I've I forced you off answering the question of how you went from PR to double trouble. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I moved to England in 2015 and um, my goal was just to work with a select amount of brands that I'd brought with me from Australia and just to continue focusing on their PR and wholesale strategies. And so I did that. Uh, but going from having uh, 40 to 50 brands to, to to, you know, whittling that down to six. I had a lot of spare time on my hands and it just happened very organically, the development of Double Trouble. I'd always, I think, wanted to have a brand. Uh, When I, you know, think back to times, I, you know, started to design and I'd, I'd drawn sketches and I'd always, I think, had that interest. But as time went on and I got busier, it just wasn't something that I explored. And then one day I just decided, that's it, I'm going to start a brand. And <laughs> Double Trouble was uh, was born. And I said about, uh, you know, finding production and thinking about the brand and thinking about what is the story that I want this brand to tell. Um, and it happened really quickly. Um, and I think within a few days, I'd, I'd started a brand. I had an Instagram account. I had a, a website, a URL <laughs> that I owned. And I think that I'm the kind of person that as soon as I start or as soon as I decide to do something, there's no going back. I give it my absolute all. So uh, just for the sake of storytelling's sake, mm-hmm. how did you come to the name of Double Trouble and the identity and mm-hmm. everything that, I mean, it's got a very clear... Um, it's got a very clear perception that it's given off, and it's 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 ingrained in a culture that we we've already like briefly spoke about before. How did how did you stumble across that world, and was it an extension of you per se, or was it something that you'd identified and gone? I think that people will resonate with this. I think it's a combination of both. I think it's definitely an extension of things that I'm interested in, so '90s pop culture, cult classic films, and actresses, and you know the supermodels of that era. Double Trouble was born out of my love for female friendships. I'd recently moved countries. I didn't really know anyone, and I was really thinking about the the people that I really value in my life and I just kept coming back to my girlfriends and the support that they give me, the fun that we have and just how ingrained our lives are with one another. So to me, I really wanted to focus on that double trouble, that partner in crime. Your life is so much richer when you have great friends Um, and so that's where the whole personality was born. It was born from the girl gang um, and friendships, best friends. So that's where that whole identity came from. And when I was thinking about that, I was able to build it out and focus on, okay, so what are some pop culture uh, examples of friendship? Sharon Dion from Clueless, you know, uh, 
mean girls, for lack of a better example. But I, as soon as you started saying that, I started thinking Thelma and Louise mm-hmm. and. Um, the Grease Girls. Yes, yeah, Pink Ladies. Pink Ladies, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was one of our very first slogans yeah. when I was uh, coming up with the with the embroideries and the slogans that I wanted to move forward with. So, yeah, so that's where Double Trouble really stemmed from. It's that tongue-in-cheek, partner-in-crime, uh, hard-on-your-sleeve personality that packs a punch. And I think that all of those elements together really embody what female friendship is. It's about strong females and it's about always supporting one another. One thing... That before we delve into actually how you grew this from 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 this place into what it is today, it, your, the clothes themselves are quite simple, and mm-hmm. um, it almost feels like a, a going through this process myself. It feels like you can over engineer something. Sometimes you can do design for design's sake. What was your logic? I mean, I'm guessing that having worked with lots of brands, you'd understand you'd had a good idea of the struggles that they face, sourcing fabrics and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there were quite a few uh, reasons behind it. One was I knew that I wanted it to be an online brand, something that uh, people have a lot of in their wardrobes. There are a lot of T-shirts and sweaters. So I knew that that wasn't something that was going to be uh, a, a purchase that was necessarily really thought about extensively in terms of fit, in terms of fabric. People know how, what a t-shirt fits like. They know what a sweater fits like. They know what kind of look and feel they want it to be. It's not, uh, you know, a 300 pound dress. It doesn't need much consideration in terms of translating from uh, a want to a purchase. Yeah. Um, I really wanted it just to be quite uh, simple, I think, in its design. I didn't want it to be um, an in-your-face. I wanted it to be something that was fun, that was not something that you necessarily was the hero of the outfit, but that was something that really showcased a bit of the wearer's personality, something that had fun, that they could choose to show if they wanted to, or they could just layer it up underneath something else. Perfect explanation. <laughs> it makes such sense. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's great. For the second segment of the interview, I had lots and lots of questions for Zoe about how she grew the brand. While there's a relatively tried and tested route to market, no two stories are the same, and I was curious to find out how she overcame many of the hurdles that upstart companies have. So you have this idea, and at this point it's a URL, it's a uh, a name, and I'm not sure how the logo came into being, but let's assume that you've got a logo. (laughs) PowerPoint. (laughs) PowerPoint, really? Wow, solid. (laughs) Yeah, my design skills are lacking so that was a powerpoint job which i still get teased about to this day but i mean i think when i look at it beans i'm a designer for 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 a living and i was like obviously there's things that i look at it and go this could be improved vastly but at the same time it's almost like that naivety to some degree and when you refer to uh, the pink ladies is it Mm -hmm. from it kind of has that school like almost like that school la vibe like you say that's a bit more kind of rough around the edges to Mm -hmm. some degree but has all that personality encapsulated in it so despite that it's it's kind of perfectly fitting but so you have these elements and you've got the domain blah blah blah. what's the first thing you do to actually make this thing happen i start an instagram right and i think that's something that a lot of brands think that they'll wait until they have a collection. They'll wait until they have a website up and running. To me, Instagram was and is the most powerful social media platform. It's free and it's something that people should really utilise. You're able to educate people as to the personality of your brand, uh, also the story of your brand and the things that align with your brand. It's an educational tool that we can utilize at our fingertips uh so that was the first thing that i did i still remember going live with the very first post (laughs) sitting on the couch (laughs) thinking will this work i hope so uh and from there i then set about um i'd you know obviously chatted with some production companies and i had a list i think of i think it was maybe 25 different slogans and i i whittled that down at first they weren't going to be sweaters it was just purely going to be t-shirts and sweaters were then an afterthought uh when i went and picked up my very first samples i thought you know what i think i'm going to add some sweaters to this i think coming from australia which is always pretty much t-shirt weather i hadn't really considered how cold it can be over here um and and then it just happened really organically 
I focused a lot on Instagram. I focused a lot on reaching out to influencers, to people that had really strong following, uh, to, to work with them, to gift them product, for them to support me because I knew that having a, a large following would build brand legitimacy and would help consumers feel comfortable in, in making an order. When you think about when a brand gets a sale, it's someone believes in your brand, someone wants your product and someone trusts your brand and that's really important and part of that is is having a large community online where people feel that they want to buy into a product as well. So two things I wanted to dig into there. When you first, um, you said you got your first samples done, mm-hmm. did you get samples done or did you go straight to production factory? Yeah, so I did have samples done. Uh, I still have them to this day. Yeah. Um, and I, I knew though very quickly what kind of font I wanted it to be, what kind of colourings I, I wanted the embroidery to be and the bases to be. I think that throughout my career and all of my experience I was able to really quickly identify what I thought would be a highly marketable brand and a brand that would sell so I knew what it was that I wanted to convey and I think that my experience meant that I had some great connections in terms of production uh, though I was living in a new country, but I was able to know what to Google, who to Google and what to ask for. So that definitely was advantageous for me. And then the other question I had was regarding um, the Instagram. Mm -hmm. So I noticed when I went on there the other day, there was like a picture of Joey from Friends. Yes. And having worked advertising, you go, I want to use this person. You can't afford that person. And so on Instagram, it's kind of a, it's the wild west to some degree. Do you pay for those imagery for that imagery, or is it something where it's a bit more like ask for forgiveness, not permission type thing in uh, order to create that world? No, you don't have to. Uh, you don't have to pay for the images on Instagram. Uh, I spend a lot of time on Google yeah. <laughs> finding <laughs> finding content. We I do post, and I still am the one that posts uh, every single image and caption. Uh, it's really important to me to have that connection back with the community that we've built. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I know what the double trouble branding is. I know what the personality is, and I know what the images are that I want to convey. Um, that continues to evolve, obviously, but it's still inherently true to what it was from that very first post. Yeah. And when you first start out, uh, obviously one of the the main things that people come up against is money and Mm -hmm. and having kind of people trying to do large production runs when they don't necessarily have the funds to do so. What was your strategy in the early days? Did you start off with small runs and see what, say, uh, to identify what sold? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. I started off with small runs um, and it's something that my production team, it's still the same production team to this day that we laugh about now. because I was very conscientious and I was really worried. I mean, I still remember thinking and and saying, you know, should I be spending more on this? Should I be spending less on this? I mean, it wasn't a huge sum to invest, but money is money. You know, at the end of the day, I don't, I never want to invest anything in something that won't give me a return, um, be it time, be it money, be it those things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely was apprehensive, but I was really fortunate in a sense of we had, I had the first sale online within a week of the brand being live. And yeah. that really fed and sustained us. We've, I've continued to reinvest back into the brand from what the brand makes. Yeah, so I guess that was a question I had a little bit later on with regards to venture capital. Like typically brands run into um, cash flow issues just mm-hmm. because the Either they've got too much in infantry, they can't get rid of quick enough to invest in new product, or they've got stuff online, but they need the money to make product, et cetera, et cetera. Um, have you been successful in being able to just kind of put stuff out, reinvest what money's come back and keep going that way, or have you taken on investment? No, I've never taken on investment. It's still uh, 100% mine, and, and I think it always will be. Um, I've been very fortunate in a sense of how the brand is also marketed a lot of brands, a lot of fashion brands release seasonal collections. I am a seasonal brand, but how we relay that message is not in the traditional format. So it's not a, here's our new spring summer collection online. It is, here are some new styles. So the classic collection that we started with day one is still online. The Lover t-shirt, which uh, was a part of the very first range, is still one of our biggest sellers. And I think that's probably been a point of difference in that sense. I also... Uh, very much love analytics and I 
love reports. So I'm really <laughs> able to identify early on when I do release a new range for the wholesale arm of the business. I really go back to what colour combinations are selling, what kind of slogans are selling and create the range around that. Yeah, so that was one question I had, which is I imagine fashion's a bit of a Pareto principle type business whereby one garment disproportionately sells versus others. Um, what's has that been true for you and if so like how does that affect your your uh, your range moving forward to some degree you just answered that but um do you one thing i've always thought is do you need kind of products that supplement your the products that sell purely on the basis of kind of creating the the world in which you want the products to live in regardless whether they don't sell nearly as much or do you remove the products that don't sell as much and try and include new ones that sell equally as Mm -hmm. well? I mean, I've never deleted a style online because there is... I think that the double trouble girl who buys the brand there's many different versions of, of her. So she might come to the website because she wants, I love a t-shirt or I love a sweater, which, uh, you know, are number one online uh, in terms of, you know, social media and um, sales as well. Um, or they might want the rose um, because they might not want wording. They might want, um, you know, that symbol. Or they might want to design their own. That's another key element of the of the brand and the business is that people can go online and they can design their own t-shirt or sweater or hoodie in our signature embroidery. So I think that um, by having a a larger selection, we're really uh, allowing the brand to be malleable to different people and to different personalities and different styles. And if you don't mind me asking, how much of the business accounts, uh, how much does the personalization account for kind of sales coming through the site? Is it quite high or... Yeah, I mean, it definitely is high. um, And I think it's a really great way for maybe the for the person who wants something, but they want something that's personal to them, be it their nickname, be it a slogan, be it a film quote that we don't offer. Um, People love that for gifting when it you know, Christmas, birthdays. Um, and, and that's really great. So it is definitely a really key component of the business and something um, that I really love having because I think it sets us apart as well. Oh, for sure. I think so. Yes. Yeah, so when you say it like that and you think of gifting and everything, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this word that's flying around at the moment, which is DNVB, which means digitally native vertical brands. And um, which is basically, in layman's terms, brands that are powered through digital. In your case, you've already spoke about how uh, heavily Instagram has played a part in, in the growth of your brand. Do you think that uh, digital brands over the, over the on the whole are going to stick around or do you think they're quite ephemeral and that they'll, they're a little bit more trend-based and that they may come and go? unlike the kind of brands that we historically know as like the big global brands? Mm -hmm. I think digital brands will always be around. I think that consumers are savvier and I think that that's why uh, a lot of bricks and mortar retail stores are having a very difficult time. People now have the world at their fingertips through their iPhone or, you know, whichever phone it is that they have. You can go online, you can compare prices, you can compare styles, you can compare, you can buy anything that you want in a second. And I think indicative of that is the fact that Instagram have just recently launched their shopping element So if you have a business account on Instagram, uh, you can now sell your products directly through Instagram. And so I think that that's indicative of the fact that we are moving more and more into that digital arena. It's interesting. I've... uh it was in a conversation that I was having with someone recently and then I also uh, heard it on a podcast too that in 10 years there's this idea that physical stores won't exist. I find that fascinating. I think that physical stores will always exist. I, I hope they always will because they give something that's different. I think the two things that set uh, digital and physical apart, physical you're going in there, you're having an experience person to person. When you're buying something online, it's really important for brands to give that experience. We, when we send out orders, everything is gift wrapped, everything is personalized with a card and it's in branded packaging. So that's the experience. And I think that it's really important to make sure that digital brands are also focusing on that bricks and mortar element, be it through stockists or be it through maybe their own exploration of having their own physical store. Um, but I think definitely digital stores will always be here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite fascinating to think about it and to think how we try and, 
like what is a brand and oftentimes we think of it as that physical environment but mm-hmm. but in the today's world it's very much online that's evolving and i think there's so many brands that are so successful that have just purely been online as well and i think that's how people are wanting to shop people are so much more time poor now than what they ever have been you know we're just getting busier and busier being able to buy something online to have it delivered the very next day is extraordinary and people want that fast turnaround you talk about metrics and i imagine that you'll be the you'll probably have it at the tip of your tongue like how much of your orders come through mobile versus desktop it's the largest percentage right. and uh, also through instagram instagram's the largest referrer that we have to the website right um those of itself are fascinating um having mobile and i know for me i mean when i think about the double trouble girl to me i am the double trouble girl so when i was building out the, when we were building out the site when i was thinking about that experience online i was thinking purely first and foremost about how it looks on mobile how it is how easy it is for people to when they first come to the website to check out how many clicks is that for them to get there how can we make it as easy for them as possible and it's something that is at the very core of the brand and everything that we think about is mobile because that is the the largest portion of of visitors and from your experience from other brands is that is that is there a gender divide in terms of shopping behavior or is it very similar uh i mean i think that it's i think that it's probably not as similar to be honest um just when i think about uh you know the people in my life and, and how they shop i think uh yeah, I think that there's definitely a difference there in how people shop online versus mobile versus desktop versus imagery as well. I think there's also a difference in how brands market uh, to to men versus women online through their through their e-commerce. Yeah, because I I mean I'm quite an, I like to be observant when I think when you work in the in media, uh, you you tend to look around and just go, what are people doing? You know, mm-hmm. what are they? What are some of the styles that are emerging? What what how are pe- how do people behave? And I always notice uh, women trawling through e-commerce sites on mm-hmm. their mobile phones on the bus. Yeah. And I never see men do it, no. ever. And that's not to say it doesn't happen. I'm sure it does, mm-hmm. but it's just, it fascinates me. And it'd be nice to, at some point, to chat to somebody that has that, the full spectrum and to understand, like, because obviously your uh, site is a women's wear collection, mm-hmm. isn't it? So whether the data reflects differently upon different genders would be quite fascinating to find out. Yeah, definitely. Um, I noticed that, obviously, uh, Instagram is a massive part of, of your business, but you've got to a point now where it's grown massively, and I imagine you would have tried numerous strategies in, in uh, over that time. What are some of the things that you've tried that have either failed miserably or that have been wildly successful? I know you mentioned influencers earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, what strategies have, have, have paid off for you? Uh, influencers are at the core of everything that we do uh, people want to emulate their style their lifestyle uh, and so a large part of that is you know having photos of them getting content of of these you know people wearing your brand that's an undeniable <laughs> asset to have so that's always been the the core be it reaching out via email or dm you know this is the amazing thing about instagram is you can have conversations with people that used to be you know you had to know them or you had to be introduced to them or you could try your chance at sending them an email i mean definitely there are people that we reach out to that you know don't get back to us but there are so many people that we do reach out to that do get back to us and we send them product and it's very organic I always want them to choose the product I never want to blind gift that's another thing that I think a lot of brands do they just will have the address of an influencer or a celebrity and they'll just pick product on their behalf that's not going to translate for you you want to have that conversation you want to have that dialogue with them you want them to choose the products that they're going to wear you don't know what their favorite color is the fit that they like those things have to be relayed to you from them. So that's definitely been, I would say, the number one thing as a brand. That also then leads into the wholesale arm of the business. Buyers are very savvy. Buyers know when a product is in demand. They look at people's Instagrams. They want to know that when they're buying a product from a brand, that that is going to sell. That's their bottom line. When they buy a brand, it needs to sell for them because they need to recoup that money and their profits. So by having a brand that's in demand, be it through Instagram influencers, that builds legitimacy and that builds that demand and that want. 
Okay, so let's dig into this because um, two questions. Mm-hmm. Oh, lots of lots of questions. <laughs> I, this is so fascinating for me because it's just a whole new realm, and so it's so nice to ask so many so many questions. But in the early days, when you didn't have much resource, I imagine, mm-hmm. or limited product runs. How much, like what quantity of your product were you gifting to influencers? So say I'm starting a brand today, I've got 30 garments or 50 garments. How many of those am I giving away versus how many am I going to keep for, for to try and sell and, and actually keep the business ticking over? And then the other question is... Uh, about stockists, but let's come to that mm-hmm. afterwards. Uh, so I think when uh, when I first started the brand, I didn't necessarily divvy up the product into being, um, you know, this is for gifting and this is for retail. I I would just reach out to people and I would, you know, introduce them to the brand and send them the link to the website and they would send through what they wanted. And if I didn't have that in stock, I'd get it made. I'm very fortunate in a sense of my turnaround. It's incredibly fast and uh, I'm really grateful for that. I think it's really hard when brands release seasonal collections and they've got different silhouettes and different samples and different prototypes that they have. That's very expensive. I'm really aware that uh, I'm really lucky in that regard um so yeah so there wasn't necessarily a specific uh, percentage focus on the divvy of the stock i think that you should reach out to as many people as possible to uh not only you know open that dialogue but just to understand the feedback or maybe you know if it is something that they're interested in to be able to identify what kind of pieces you think that people are after it's also just really nice to have that support and to build relationships that aren't purely on a uh, they support you and they're giving you content it's really nice and really important to take an interest in their content and to see what they're doing it's an amazing new arena out there digitally and I think it's so important to be a part of that. Also, not just to focus on, you know, influencers who have half a million, a million followers. I really find it uh, to be that when we focus on the influencers that have 40, 50 60,000 followers, that translates really well for us in terms of sell-through back from uh, people wanting that brand. So I think it's really important to focus on an array of different influences, but all that which embody your vision for the brand. So this is a, another question just to even on the point that you just made there is, say, for example, um, you're creating a, say you're Rafa mm-hmm. and you're creating a sportswear brand and you're starting out and you identify a cyclist who's extremely prominent in cycling, but nobody really knows him other than people that are into cycling. Mm-hmm. He's got awful taste on Instagram. <laughs> he posts really rubbish pictures, but he's he's a he's a he's he's the person that you want your clothing on. But at the same time, he doesn't have much influence in the social sphere. Mm-hmm. It, is that somebody that you would pass on, or is it, or because that they embody the life of the person you're trying to? to um that you're trying to give your product to Mm -hmm. would you still consider them to be an influencer if they're more of an influencer in real world than social definitely i mean if if they have a currency um be it through their you know professional experience and absolutely um i think it's really important to to branch out in terms of who you target not just to target people um that you know have that have that huge following but um i definitely think about the content as well as to what you're going to get about it and making sure that they align with the vision of your brand um because people want authenticity people really connect and they really crave that so i think i'd definitely make sure that that their message is is on brand with what your message is uh, you know that you're wanting to achieve yeah um a massive massive thing for you is uh, the, there's the difference between direct-to-consumer and stockists. And obviously, direct-to-consumer, you make larger margins because you're not having to pay pay a fee uh, or, or uh, charge less to the stockist who then needs, needs to make a profit on top of you. Um, what made you decide to go from direct-to-consumer, scenes as you make a lot of traffic through places like Instagram, mm-hmm. and instead go to stockists? I think it would be silly not to, to be completely honest. If there's a demand for your product, you need to explore all of those avenues. Very quickly, I think it was, we launched in October uh, and by March, and I think also coming from my background of wholesale, uh, I was able to identify that that was a really core component that I needed for the brand. When you have wholesale stockists that also 
they might carry a part of the range, but they they don't they don't carry all of the range. So you're also broadening the scope and the reach of your label. Uh, in a sense, of people might come in and they might see you know a few different styles and they think, oh, that's cool. I'd like to check out and see what else they have. So you're reaching people in an entirely new way. You're broadening the uh, the reach that you have as brand, which is incredibly important. And it's also legitimizing your brand. So for us, when we're a brand and we're sitting alongside you know Alexander Wang or Garni. Uh, that gives our brand more legitimacy and a greater currency in the fashion industry. So that was a, a very quick, as soon as I had kind of the groundwork done and I knew that I'd be able to handle it and facilitate it, that was something that was a, a no-brainer. So go, uh, how does a person who started a brand approach a stockist and what's the process that you go through? Is it Dragon's Den-esque or <laughs> like, what, what, what's the deal? So uh, well, I don't reach out. I have an incredible wholesale agent who has been fundamental to the growth of the brand. I'm very, very, very fortunate to, to work with her. Um, and she's based in Australia uh, and, and she manages the global wholesale element of the brand. So uh, what happens is I hand over the range um, and she takes the the range and takes it and shows it to stockists via appointments or Skype appointments or um, via email. From there, then the stockist will identify the pieces that they want. I mean, not everyone wants to stock every single brand. So be prepared, you know, to get told no. Um but when they do want to take your brand on, they'll select maybe five or six different styles, a size run, and then they tell you when you want when they want the product to arrive into store. So really quickly and very, we were really fortunate. We had a lot of interest and we had a lot of growth very rapidly. Uh, and I think that we anticipated it because it had been it was right on the cusp. We were getting a lot of support from really big influencers who held a lot of. Uh, ground in the industry and from that and uh, Bianca who's my wholesale agent her connections and and both of our joint understanding of the industry we knew how to package it we knew how to get it in front of stores to make them want to buy the product okay so there's a lot of elements there in terms of a wholesale wholesale agent, like how would how is that a Google search? Like how yes. how do, yes it is <laughs> yeah. So you can just Google wholesale agent, the city that it is that you're in. I mean, I was really fortunate. It's actually really funny. So when I had my PR agency in Sydney, Bianca also had a fashion PR agency, and it's kind of this unwritten rule that you don't really you know chat with other PR agencies. You're in, with the enemy. Yes, exactly. Um, and so when I knew that I wanted to kind of branch out into that. I knew that I didn't want to manage that element. I, I just wanted to have that separation. And I had been chatting to one of my friends and um, she had said that her friend Bianca had recently um, left her PR agency and had decided to focus purely on the wholesale element. So there was an e-introduction and we had a Skype and that was it. The The rest is honestly history. So I'm very fortunate in that. I know that coming from the industry that I've been in, the experience that I've had, that I have had a lot of shortcuts because I know exactly what to look for. I know what to ask for. If you don't have that, the best thing to do is to Google, is to Instagram as well, is to look at brands that are similar to yours. Everyone has that information on their website. So if there's a brand that you identify with that you think, yeah, I think that's a similar brand to, to what it is, to what mine is, go onto their website, go to the contact page. They'll always have wholesale agencies there um, for the people that represent their brand. That's great advice. Yeah, definitely. The other thing you can do is start a podcast and ask a million questions. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, let's imagine you start this whole process again. One more question on that, actually. How did you get yourself through the growth period, like, um, you know, financially? Uh, I mean... I think I was just really lucky with um, the products in a sense that my my brand isn't, you know, a 500-pound dress. It's a 39-pound T-shirt, a 59-pound sweater. That was uh, definitely there was, um, you know, times that I really had to think about it and make sure that we were that I was reinvesting back into the brand. But the growth of the brand, the the rapid amount at which, you know, we had stockists, uh, the terms as well that we had in place with the stockists, that all meant that uh, 
I was in a very comfortable position and that I wasn't having to, uh, you know, run on empty, that I was able to reinvest back into the brand. Right, because in, in that circumstance, isn't it, It's what's the, is it like a 50-50 split or something in terms of money up front versus upon sale? It really depends on the brand and it really depends on the store. Right. Um, so when you're dealing with, you know, a smaller store, uh, it might be 50% up front, it might be 100% up front. It just really depends on the stockist. It's when you start to deal with, uh, you know, department stores that you really need to be able to, to back yourself, that you really right. need to be able to, uh, you know, fund that yourself. I mean, obviously, you can always go outside and you can always seek investment or you can always take out a loan um, because... I mean, different stores have different terms and conditions, but, you know, some can be upwards of 90 to 120 days. So you have to be able to know that you can pay for your production, you can pay for your staff, you can pay for everything, and that you can wait, you know, those three or four months until you get paid. Um, But brands also have a lot of power as well in making sure that the terms and conditions are right for them. And I think that, um, and you know, it's easy to to get scared (laughs) and it's easy to not, uh, to feel that you can't ask or that you can't negotiate, but there's always room to negotiate and it has to be right for everyone. Before we move on to the final section of the interview, if there was one to three things that either you would never do again or that you would definitely do again should you to start a brand again tomorrow, mm-hmm. uh, what would those things be, do you think? The three things I would definitely do are start Instagram immediately as soon as you have that concept, as soon as you've got the name, get on there, get that handle, get started. Uh Partner with people that uh, are people that are going to treat your brand like it's their own. To to me, that's been fundamental in the growth and the success of the brand. I'm very fortunate to work with the people that I work with, and I know and I feel lucky every single day because I know that they work as hard and as tirelessly as what I do. So make sure that you're partnering with the right people, and also to make sure that you never lose sight of the brand that it is that you're wanting to create, but that you're also malleable. Understand that you don't know everything. You can't possibly know everything. You can have as much experience in buying, in, you know, PR, but you don't know everything. And I think it's really important to let other people in to to give you ideas and to, to help you grow. Having shared so much useful information with us about how she grew Double Trouble Gang, I was really interested to hear where Zoe sees the brand going moving forward. So I want to say thank you so much just for kind of, I, mean, I knew that this interview was going to be more of me just throwing questions and, and, and getting replies as less so than a conversation, mm-hmm. which is what it typically is. But it's such an uncharted realm for me, unlike many of the graphic designers or photographers or whatever that we've had in here. So I'm hoping that for anyone listening that's in the same kind of starting position, yeah. that they will have got a lot from this from this episode. Um, I thought I'd give you the opportunity. Obviously, you're where you are now, but I imagine that you foresee that there's lots of scope to grow. Where would you like the brand to go? Um, I mean, I always want the brand to continue to grow in a sense of I'd love for us to think about introducing new uh, product categories. And I'd also like to focus on really dominating each market. There are so many markets out there. We have an incredible stockist portfolio. Uh, There's always room to grow in that arena. Um, And just by making sure that we focus... uh, that we don't grow rapidly, but that it's a very considered growth and that we focus on each market one at a time in order to make sure that it's sustainable. And that as well, I think it's always interesting. I'm very much aware that it's a a trend-based product, but it's a product that also has longevity in the market. So by making sure that everything that we do is, is very considered and we're very strategic in that way in how we grow the brand. And then final question, I always like to try and throw something out that should somebody be listening to this and they go, you know what, Zoe sounds awesome, I want to be part of that. Um, but if you could plant a seed out there and say there's one person, one publication I'd love to be in, one person I'd love to work with, one country I'd like us to get a distributor in, like what, what, where would that be? Oh, gosh, that's so hard. There's so much <laughs> that I want to achieve, honestly. Um, oh, goodness me. I mean, I think I'd really love to... It's oh, that's really hard. <laughs> we were talking earlier about LA and stuff, weren't we? I yeah. wonder if there's anything over there you could do. I mean, I think to be honest, I think I'd really love to have a, a physical double trouble 
location, a store, to have that bricks and mortar experience for, for people coming through the door and able to really drive home what it is, what our mission is, what our personality is. To me, that's definitely been a seed in my mind somewhere that has been uh, flourishing. We did an event in partnership with Instagram uh, at the end of last year and the response to that was so incredible that I really started to think, you know what, I think that there might be something here to explore. So I think in terms of uh, that you know, moonshot. <laughs> yeah. I think that's definitely well, that's definitely it. We greased over that a little bit. Do you do you understand the economics around stores for brands? Is it a break even venture in order to kind of disseminate the brand more or, or I mean I think it has to be more than a break even venture. Yeah. I think in anything that you know, just going back to investing time, investing money, it has to be more than that. It has to be something that is a larger uh you know profit motivated uh, Definitely. Um, But that's also, it also has to stay true to the brand and it has to be at the right time. It has to be in the right location. There's a lot of different things to consider there. There's, and it's an expensive exercise. So I I like to think it's a a small seed that's (laughs) maybe flourishing. Well, if anybody's listening and they're like, we've got the perfect place. (laughs) Yes. We'll do 70% off rent. Just get yourself over here. All right. That'd be great. (laughs) Would be fantastic. Um, so let's uh, get on to some quick fire questions mm-hmm. for you. So uh, what's something culturally from Australia that you miss in the UK? Oh, gosh. Um, giant spiders. Besides the sun. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, giant spiders. I don't miss uh, I don't miss fearing for my life thanks to the gigantic spiders that are over there. Um, I mean, I don't want to be lame and say my family, but that'd be nice. <laughs> um, but I think culturally... Um, the food. I really miss the oh the coffee. That would be it. It would be the coffee. Really? Oh, the coffee is coffee is an integral part of our life in Australia, honestly. And it would be the first thing that I would do with my day was uh, you drink two to three cups of coffee easily. Um, I'd I'd take that in a second. I noticed before I came in actually we we record this just off Oxford Street, um, and there's a really fancy pants coffee place just around the corner it's like the curated coffee shop or something Ooh. i was like oh sounds rather uh, i have to try that out yeah like they 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 go out of the way to find different beans or something so yeah <laughs> it's w- worth checking out Though i must say that since moving to england i have a very strong appreciation for a breakfast tea yeah i've it's replaced my love of coffee i drink probably about six or seven cups of it a day wow mm. <laughs> that's impressive <laughs> so uh aside from double trouble gang mm. what clothing brand inspires you oh there's so many I think uh, probably the the number one is Garni. It's a brand that's been around for about 10 years. Uh, I'm pretty sure they're Danish. I think they are. Um, And they just do really cool collections that are very targeted, that are very considered, but they really have that strong digital element. And I think it really ticks uh, all those boxes. Recently, they just uh, had a large investment. Um, I think it was by the parent company of Louis Vuitton. Um, but they're just a brand that I think are really ticking all the boxes. You've already mentioned that Instagram for you has been a, a massive part and you've just shared that brand there. Just because there'll be people out there listening to this that want to kind of study some other brands out there and look at how it's been done correct, are there any other brands out there that you think people should check out? I think uh, as a brand uh, and as an online website, net they are an undeniable force in fashion with everything from their content to how people receive the packages. It's an experience online. So even though they themselves aren't a fashion brand per se, the entire digital experience that they have been able to carve out and very early on when uh, when they launched, they were the first fashion online retailer and what they have been able to do and establish and, and in a sense completely re- create an entirely new industry uh, is phenomenal. So I think that anyone that is wanting to start a brand it should really look to Net-A-Porte in a sense of everything from online, the website, have, you know, the navigation of the website to adding to cart to the end result, which is as a consumer getting the, getting the product that you've purchased online. Just to go even further past that, I know that the, the I think it's either the CEO or the person that runs net is quite a 
Uh, obviously, I'm not ingrained in the world of fashion, but she, I believe that she's quite a, a figurehead and quite a powerful figure within the fashion scene. Mm-hmm. Are there other people that you're aware of that you think that people should maybe follow or, or kind of look to for, for their words with regards to the, the fashion industry? On that, actually, we had Imran Ahmed on yes, a couple of weeks ago from the Business great. Fashion. And obviously, he's a, uh, a legend in the in the scene. But are there other folks that you would recommend people check out? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is where Instagram is, again, such a powerful tool is because you can really connect and you can follow people's stories. And people are very uh, plentiful with the advice and, and also the day-to-day life that it is that they're, that they're living. Um, I mean, from a non-fashion element, I would definitely recommend following uh, Jen Atkin, who is the founder of Way, which is a hair care brand. It's a digitally native uh, hair care brand. Also, Emily Weiss, who created Glossier, which is another digitally native beauty brand. Uh, those are two women that I hugely admire. Uh, also, Whitney Wolf, who is the founder of Bumble. Her uh, Instagram is an incredibly powerful resource thanks to, um, you know, Bumble isn't just a dating app. You've got Bumble Biz, you've got Bumble BFF. It's all about connecting individuals. Uh, Sarah Blakely, who is the founder of Spanx. I love her Instagram. She gives a very raw insight into the day-to-day life of running a billion dollar company and juggling it all you know family and life and and I love how real she is so I think that those four women are hugely inspirational I follow them on Instagram I love I just love watching (laughs) them and watching their businesses flourish and um so I would say I'd say those four so you know there's definitely overlaps there in terms of fashion, but from a business perspective, I think it's also really important not just to focus on your industry. So even though I own a fashion brand, I look outside and I look at what other digitally native brands like Glossier are doing or what The Way is doing. And I think that that's really important. I don't think I should ask this one because I think I know the answer. What resources helped you build a double trouble gang that you could no longer, that you couldn't live without? Instagram. Yeah. Without a doubt. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) And we were briefly touching upon this before, but I know that you're a podcast fan and uh, anybody that's a podcast fan is my best friend already. (laughs) So uh, what are some of your favourites or some that people should maybe listen to if they're they're into this scene? Yeah. So my top three would definitely be um, The High Low, which is by Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton, who are two uh, UK journalists. And it's just a fantastic podcast. I only just discovered the podcast a few, I think it was last week, and I binged it all. They're just fantastic women who have a really great conversation and it's just engaging. They honestly feel like they're your friends. You feel like you're just in the room as a part of the conversation. The one that I listen to every single day is The Daily by The New York Times that comes out at around 11am in the UK Um, and I listen to it (laughs) without fail. It is my favourite podcast. And then How I Built This, which um, is a great podcast inspiration wise. They chat with, uh, you know, the founders of Ben and Jerry's to Sarah Blakely, who's the founder of Spanx, and they talk to them about their processes and how they've built these incredible companies, and and I just love that. This could be a How I Built This episode. Do you know, when I was telling my friends uh, that I was coming on the podcast and I was, you know, talking to them about your podcast, they were like, that sounds like How I Built This. And I was like, it really is like How I Built This. It's the non-NPR kind of shit British version. (laughs) It's not shit. (laughs) I appreciate it, thanks. It's fantastic. I love your podcast, thank you. Uh, uh, Yeah, well, there we go. You've taken it to a new level. Uh, So... As we're uh, nearing the end of the interview, uh, where can people get hold of you? Mm -hmm. And also, do you have any asks for the audience? So uh, you can get hold of me through uh, the Double Trouble website, which is doubletroublegang.com. If you pop an email uh, there, I will definitely be receiving that. Or you can DM us on Instagram. So our handle is at doubletroublegang. And I still manage the Instagram all myself um, and I love getting DMs from from everyone really it's really a highlight of my day when I see people you know gramming the gramming themselves wearing double trouble or regramming an image that we've posted um, or just commenting and messaging and saying thank you so much I love my t-shirt I love my sweater so you can reach out to me via that so buy a double trouble top gram it 
That, that, that's the ask for the audience. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> just follow us and see. <laughs> just follow us and um, and just be a part of the journey. It's really. It's a great brand, oh, and you've done you. a great job with it. So thank um, you. It's not yeah. all me. Yeah, I, reco- <laughs> I recommend people go and check it out. And I, the thing which I really admire about it is I don't mean this uh, negatively at all, but the simplicity of it. I, you know, you've really thought about it and you've got about it as a busy, uh, a savvy business person, and I think that. It shows, you know, it, it makes it makes absolute sense. So, final, 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 final question: mm-hmm. uh, If you could give the world one piece of advice to live a more fulfilled and meaningful life, this is the deep one, the philosophical one, where mm-hmm. we can write your quote in history. <laughs> uh, what would it be? Uh, there's something that I think is really important, and uh, I went. It was actually when I remember when I had my agency, and just going back to the competitive nature. It's really easy to lose sight of what it is that you're accomplishing and you're achieving. And there's a quote by uh, Theodore Roosevelt, which is, "Comparison is the thief of joy." And I remember when I read that, and it just really resonated with me. I think it's really important to never lose sight of what it is that you're accomplishing, and also the the fact that everyone's trajectories are different and that you can't look at these digital lives that are online and think that that's reality because it's not. I mean, it's all well and good. You know, on paper, Double Trouble looks like it's had an amazing growth and it really has, but there have definitely been things that, you know, low points that, you know, that you have to go through. They're not shared though. And so I think that it's always really important and I think it would just make everyone happier and and healthier in a sense of understanding that not everything that you see online, it's a lot of it for, you know, it can be smoke and mirrors. So it's really important to understand that and not to compare your journey to someone else's because, like I said, everyone's trajectories are different. I think that's lovely advice. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think we should leave it there. But, so thank you so much for no. coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It's thank been great so to finally much. meet you. Yes. I've heard lots about you before today. So, uh, yeah, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for having me. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoy the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>